Welcome back, listeners, to Season 4 of Talking PFAS Podcast. I'm a journalist and your host, Kayleen Bell. And my guest today on Talking PFAS Features is attorney John Gardella from CMBG3 Law in Boston. And this law firm specialises in regulatory litigation and compliance aspects of numerous environmental and toxic torts issues. John is a member of the firm's PFAS team, which counsels clients on PFAS-related issues, ranging from state violations to remediation litigation. John has over 15 years of experience litigating environmental and toxic torts matters, including asbestos, PFAS, benzene, lead paint, mould, talc, hazardous waste and pollution matters. And John has written a couple of papers in the National Law Review in April, which we will be discussing in the interview today. One of those includes a $11.9 million settlement, which was just announced in a Michigan lawsuit, in which a class of approximately 3,000 plaintiffs alleged that a PFAS manufacturer and a PFAS using paper mill contaminated drinking water supplies, thereby polluting the environment and placing nearby citizens at increased risk of adverse health effects. John says in his article that the PFAS paper mill settlement is noteworthy, not because it is yet another settlement by 3M, but because a business that used PFAS in its manufacturing process found itself yet again needing to settle a costly lawsuit for actions that took place over the course of several decades. John says companies of all types, not just paper companies, must understand that there is but one representative example of the type of lawsuits that we have predicted will have significant impacts on company financials as awareness of PFAS issues continue to grow. These impacts will be felt well beyond industries that use PFAS directly in their manufacturing processes and companies of any type must take a closer look at current or legacy PFAS issues that may plague them in the near future. Now to today's discussion with John, which centers around PFAS litigation. I'm an attorney in the United States located in Boston, Massachusetts. I'm one of the owners of the law firm uh, CMBG3. We are located in Boston, but we have a few offices in the United States. We're an environmental law firm, and environmental law is something that I personally have been practicing for almost 17 years now. And it's really been within the last five years Uh, at least within the U.S., that PFAS has become an issue, a litigation and a compliance issue, and it's something that I've really, really focused on and spend a good deal of time on right now. Yes, it's certainly become a lot more litigation in the last couple of years, wouldn't you say, around the world? Absolutely. Definitely around the world. I've seen a lot out of the EU, and I'm obviously well familiar with the occurrences in the United States, uh, if you wish to talk about them. Yes, I do. So can you please give me a, a an update or our listeners an overview of what's been happening in the United States with PFAS litigation? The initial focus of the litigation several years ago really began as an environmental pollution type of litigation. In other words, most of the lawsuits that you were seeing were municipalities, in other words, towns or states, or even water districts, public or private, the ones that were supplying drinking water to citizens, were filing these lawsuits to try and have the PFAS manufacturers 
that would be DuPont and 3M in the United States, held responsible for paying for the cleanup costs associated with PFAS in drinking water. And, you know, many of the lawsuits resulted in tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of U.S. dollars in settlements that these cities, states, and water companies could use for remediation efforts, primarily filtering out PFAS and the technology surrounding that. I think more recently what we've seen in the United States is more product lawsuits beginning with respect to PFAS. The initial targets of those lawsuits, quite predictably, probably to all of your listeners, would be the firefighting foams, the AFFF as we call them. Because the product is so ubiquitous and has so much PFAS in it, and it's such a high volume polluter of the environment, So there's, in the state of South Carolina in the United States, there's actually a docket specifically for lawsuits centering around that product. And as of today, there are about 550 lawsuits that sit on that docket that are currently being litigated. 550, is that just in South Carolina? Uh, It's in South Carolina, yes, but they come from all over the United States. So essentially what happens is if somebody were to sue one of the AFFF manufacturers or even 3M and DuPont with AFFF allegations in the lawsuit, the companies will move the court and ask the case to be consolidated onto that docket in South Carolina. So it's by design. It's supposed to sort of make a more efficient litigation and presumably a more efficient settlement if there is going to be one that occurs. So that's why they're all centered there. But there are numerous other dozens, if not hundreds of other lawsuits throughout the United States as well that don't focus on AFFF specifically. That is new, isn't it? Do you know with the AFFF, are they just focusing on the long chain chemicals of PFOS and PFOA or are they all PFAS firefighting foam? Some of them address both. I mean, the majority of them, yes, they do focus on the PFOA, the PFOS, but there are also short chain Gen X type of PFAS that are being addressed in those lawsuits with respect to the AFFF. And outside of the AFFF lawsuits here in the US, there is an ever increasing number of lawsuits that do focus on the short chain or, you know, the so-called Gen X PFAS compounds as well. Right. And also, I understand that some lawsuits will be focusing on medical. In, in the US, that's more frequent than in Australia. And some are focusing on the loss of value of people's land. What are the liabilities asserted generally? Yes, I, I actually think that most of them are asserting almost all the same things. You know, medical monitoring, as we call it in the U.S. here, is something that is a little bit unique and not every state allows it or follows it or permits it, I should say. But it's essentially a way for a state to get funds and compensation to set up a long-term medical program so that the citizens within the area can be followed throughout time to ensure that they're not developing any of the problems that have been found to be associated with PFAS ingestion. And that's one of the most common claims nowadays is they're asking the courts to allow them to establish those medical monitoring programs, even in states where that has typically not been allowed before. They're hoping that given the magnitude of the PFAS exposures and levels that we're seeing in people 
throughout the country and throughout the world that those medical monitoring programs will be allowed. And beyond the medical monitoring, they are also, yes, asking for property devaluation. They're claiming the PFAS are polluting their land and causing it to lose its value, so they want the difference. And then there are claims that are asserting personal injury to individuals, you know, for testicular cancer, kidney cancer, things like that. And they want to be compensated on an individual level as well. And then you've got some claims there, I see, around a lawsuit we're just about to talk about in Alaska of negligence, nuisance, trespass and products liability. Yes. So I think the Alaska one is a good example. It's a lawsuit brought by the state, again, trying to get compensation for remediation of PFAS that exists in the environment. And what they typically do, you know, it's sort of a legal maneuver, truthfully, but they throw in any claim that they believe is viable, just in case one or two of them, for some reason, are knocked out by the court or the other side argues that they don't apply in this case. So they do have negligence. They almost always have gross negligence. That's a type of heightened claim, essentially saying that the manufacturers not only acted negligently, but most often that they acted deliberately or willfully, and so should be held accountable at a higher level for those damages as well. In the U.S., we also have nuisance, either a public nuisance, which would be applicable in the sense of a wide swath of citizens who are allegedly exposed to PFAS and are suffering some harm. We have private nuisance, which is a little more focused on, for example, it would be my land or my house that I own as an individual. I'm asserting that there's a private nuisance going on on the, on the land that I own. And then there are things like trespass essentially saying that a company put something or caused to have something enter the property which was unwanted, and that's a trespass. I just saw a lawsuit the other day that settled a PFAS lawsuit that had alleged battery in the sense of assault and battery. Is that the one that settled for $11.9 million? It was a PFAS paper mill settlement. Is that the one you're talking about? Yes, there was a claim of battery in that one, yes. So the paper mill one that just settled not just a few days ago was brought in the state of Michigan. And what had happened in uh, Michigan is that there was a paper mill that had been there for almost uh, actually over 100 years And for many of those years, they were manufacturing paper products that were coated uh, with PFAS so that they could become oil and grease resistant. Now, pursuant to all applicable and allowable licenses and permits at the time in the state, the company had a landfill nearby on an adjacent piece of land that it owned where it would dump the waste from the paper manufacturing process, including sludge and other byproducts that went into the manufacturing process. Now, over time, the problem was that that landfill, when it was created decades ago, was not lined in any way. So the PFAS leached over time from the landfill into the nearby waterway. The town was relatively small. It was about 3,000, 3,500, I believe, citizens brought a lawsuit two years ago saying that the PFAS were at astronomically high levels, well above the limit that the state had set, and that the owner of the landfill was responsible for polluting the environment and that the citizens were entitled to damages. So that one recently settled for 11.9 million U.S. dollars just earlier this week. They found a total PFAS concentration of 1,587 parts per trillion in the local water sources. Is that correct? The people were drinking. 
Yes, that was the downstream levels that were tested. The ones that were closer to the landfill itself were actually much higher. I believe it was around 11,000 parts per trillion. Okay, yes. I'll just read it out so the listeners have the context. It says, well testing was conducted in the immediate area around the landfill and PFAS concentrations of up to 11,500 parts per trillion were discovered. Now, that's significant because Michigan had adopted a 70 parts per trillion acceptable drinking water level, haven't they? Yes, they had. They were following the recommendation of the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA in the U.S. at the federal level. While that's not an enforceable standard by the EPA, it's a recommended level, and Michigan was following that recommended level. I believe it was 3,000 citizens is what it says in um, your article that you wrote for the National Law Review on the 28th of April, and people can go and look at that. I'll put a link up. Here's the thing about battery. I'll just read that out. The lawsuit sought damages for necessary medical monitoring for the class participants, nuisance, trespass, negligence, gross negligence, battery and products liability claims. What does the battery stand for? Well, in the US, battery is both a criminal and a civil allegation, actually. And at least in the US, I know that in some other countries and maybe even Australia, it may not be intentional, but it essentially means an offensive contact with a person, something that was unwanted and not asked for without consent. In this instance, in the civil lawsuit, the citizens were saying, well, we never consented to, we never even knew that... PFAS were going to be entering our body and therefore under civil law in the United States, that's an unwanted and unconsented to harmful contact and is therefore a battery. Something that we don't talk about, well, we haven't talked about in PFAS class actions in Australia. We've got several class actions going on against the Department of Defence, but they are, I believe, the only class actions so far in Australia. I think there is one council also suing against the Department of Defence for the firefighting foam. But battery is not something that we've seen in the language. Yes, actually, truthfully, in uh, the United States, it's a relatively new one. This is one I'm trying to go in my memory bank here, but that is one of the few that I have personally seen that has alleged battery. All the other ones that you read off, uh, Kayleen, are fairly common. Nuisance, trespass, products liability, medical monitoring, those are all fairly common. Battery was a bit of a, a new one. It was a little bit of an interesting one. Yeah, and in the conclusion in that article, you talk about PFAS drinking water rules will be finalised at the federal level. That's your prediction for 2021. Do you think that that will happen, that there will be uh, mandatory monitoring and regulation that is enforceable with drinking water in the United States? I do. I've been saying that for a little while, the past few months, but especially with the change in presidency that we had in January and the new head of the EPA that recently came in was sworn in in February of this year. And even just the actions that have taken place so far with respect to PFAS in the United States by the EPA at the federal level, I think the writing is clearly on the wall now that the EPA does intend to take action with respect to PFAS. And You know, the regulatory process in the United States is, I think, truthfully, notoriously a bit on the slower side, especially when compared to the EU. But the Uh advantage that the incoming EPA head and President Biden have is that much of the necessary regulatory steps 
that the EPA would have had to undertake, that being a lot of research and a lot of data collection and assessing that data has already been done over time. So they're not going to have to start from scratch and do all of that. And they've already signaled their intent almost immediately when President Biden came in that they will take action uh, or they intend to take action with respect to drinking water limits in the United States. It does focus specifically for the moment on PFOA and PFOS. However, there's a catch clause that says, you know, we reserve the right essentially to examine other PFAS as well and include that in any final standard. But we'll see if that comes to pass. But it's going to happen, uh, Kayleen, and I, I do think it will happen. If it doesn't happen at the end of this year, it will absolutely happen next year. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind about it. President Biden and his vice president-elect Harris campaigned on this very thing. And while climate change, also a very worthy issue to talk about and for the government to address, received almost all of the press with respect to the environmental push by the president. If you actually go into his speeches and actually go online and look through his 480-page campaign memorandum about the issues that he promises he intends to keep, the number two environmental issue that's mentioned there is PFAS. Wow, number two. That is surprising. I didn't realize it was that high a priority for him, but it's good news. It's good news for residents. It's good news for people that have had no choice about drinking PFAS contaminated water, but it's bad news for water providers and companies that use these chemicals in their manufacture process or they manufacture these chemicals. Isn't that correct? Yeah, I think that the water companies are in, at least in the United States, the way things work, they're in, they're in a difficult position because they are going to be under significant pressure to find ways to properly filter out PFAS, obviously at enormously high volumes of water. The problem with that is the technology is extremely expensive and it's probably not at its most perfect state at the moment especially when you consider that you would need filtration systems that can accurately filter out thousands of the different PFAS that do exist. So they're in a difficult position, and it's one of the reasons in the United States why uh, there have been quite a few lawsuits brought by the water districts who are proactively trying to get ahead of this and recover costs that they need to try and address the problem. And truthfully, part of it may actually be proactive in the sense that they don't want to find themselves on the opposite end getting sued for not taking steps. You know, there's no doubt that water districts in the United States know about this problem. There's not a single one of them that I think could credibly say that they've never heard of the problem. (laughs) So they are very wary of citizens, private citizens, monitoring what they're doing and potentially bringing lawsuits saying that they haven't done enough if the problem continues to persist. And the corporate problem is more complex than that even. But as you probably saw in in my article that you referenced and the others that I've written, we always advise clients, corporate clients, they absolutely need to stay ahead of this problem right now. They need to examine not only their own manufacturing, but the supply chain that they're getting their information from. And at least in the United States, one thing that suppliers of parts or products are obligated to do to manufacturers is provide what are called manufacturing safety data sheets, MSDS sheets. But the problem with that is that you're only required to put on those sheets known hazardous products or ones that are actually regulated. 
At the moment, PFAS are not regulated at the federal level, and so many companies don't even put PFAS on those sheets, alerting purchasers of those parts or byproducts uh, that go into manufacturing of the PFAS content. So as an attorney consulting with those companies, one of the things we always stress is you have got to press and really do your due diligence and find out what is coming into your manufacturing facility because it's going to go out again and you're going to be on the hook for it legally. Wow. It's really great what you're talking about, by the way. We're not as familiar with the American process here in Australia. I just want to talk about the Alaska PFAS lawsuit. In the National Law Review on Thursday 22nd of April, you wrote another article talking about Alaska's Attorney General filing a lawsuit against 30 companies on April 7, 2021, seeking damages for PFAS pollution to the environment throughout the state. Can you just talk about that one for a little bit? Yes. Well, in the United States, every state has an attorney general, which you can think of sort of like as the top attorney for the state. And they are tasked with the responsibility of representing the state's interests. So they can bring lawsuits, as they did in Alaska, that they believe will protect the citizens of the state as a whole. And in this lawsuit, uh, which is very recent, the state of Alaska, as you said, it brought suit against 30 different companies. And two of them are predictable. They are the manufacturers of PFAS, 3M and DuPont. There are a few distributors of PFAS that 3M and DuPont and some of the other AFFF companies worked with. And then there are the manufacturers of the AFFF products as well. So, you know, the intent is pretty clear in terms of what Alaska is, is going for here. They're going directly towards the PFAS manufacturers themselves and the AFFF manufacturers to collect these damages. Again, going back to what you and I talked about earlier, Kayleen, that those are really the highest volume dispensers of PFAS to the environment. So the state is looking to essentially collect costs for any past procedures it may have had to take to try and remediate PFAS in drinking water, any present costs that it's currently having to pay out to remediate PFAS or address the PFAS problem, and any future costs that it predicts it will have to take in order to quote-unquote clean up the state's water issue with respect to PFAS. So they didn't put, and this is typical in the U.S., they don't specifically seek a dollar value that they absolutely are looking for. They leave that to litigation. So I anticipate that it's going to be obviously the subject of negotiations in the months and years to come. Yeah, I think, didn't you say that also significantly, Alaska seeks triple damages under its state statutes, as well as punitive damages to punish the alleged bad behavior on the part of the corporations. Can you just explain that one for me and and what that might mean for these companies? Well, in the US, punitive damages, as you said, are ones that are sought to punish very bad behavior. You know, each state has different language that it uses, the standard by which that is judged, but typically it's for intentional behavior or behavior that is just considered to be reckless. You acted just so recklessly that it sort of shocks the conscience. And that's what the state of Alaska is essentially doing. And what it triggers in Alaska and many states in the United States is if you're successful on that claim, if there were to be a jury trial and the jury were to award damages, if the jury were to also say, well, you were also entitled to punitive damages, well, then whatever the jury said the damages were, you essentially triple them. 
So if the jury were to say the state of Alaska is uh, entitled to $500 million in damages and these defendants, these companies acted recklessly or intentionally and punitive damages should should be triggered, then you're up to $1.5 billion. That's a very large number. And and I imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, but I imagine with all the great number of suits that you talked about before that are just being filed and the ones that have already occurred, I would imagine that companies would have a weaker defense to say that they didn't know that these chemicals were harmful or they didn't intentionally release them because we've seen lawsuits as you say, and as we've talked about. So they're well aware that releasing these chemicals could land them in um, court and cost them a lot of money. Yes, certainly with respect to the 3M and DuPont companies in the US, that has been the focus of many of the lawsuits because the allegation is that their knowledge went back to the 1960s and 1970s and that they knew the harms of PFAS and continued to sell the product and not tell anyone with other companies, perhaps companies that were simply purchasing the PFAS chemical and legitimately were not told by 3M or DuPont of what those companies knew internally about the harms of PFAS. At least if you're dealing with lawsuits that focus on pollution or personal injury claims that happened many, many years ago, the company might have a defense and say, "I, I truthfully never knew. But if you're dealing with lawsuits that focus more on the last 10, 15, or even 20 years, I absolutely agree with what you said. It's getting harder and harder by the day for any company to ever put on a defense that they truthfully had no idea that PFAS presented any problems. But again, that is only within the last decade or so that I think a company could you know, run into issues in the legal system by saying, well, we, we had no idea. There's mounting evidence within the last 10 years for sure that they had available to them and it's it'll be challenging for them to make that defense but prior to 10 years you know i think there are some arguments to be made obviously they depend on the facts but that's what i would say definitely it would depend on each um, individual case for sure what do you think of rob belot's work the taft lawyer who dug in and highlighted pfoa in the first place i think 20 years ago Yes, that's right. I haven't had the opportunity to meet him. I obviously read quite a bit about him. I've been on a few webinars virtually where he has spoken. And for those of you that may not know who Rob Balot is, he is a lawyer from Taft and he was responsible for exposing PFOA a few decades ago. There is a movie about his work called Dark Waters and he's also written a book about his PFAS work called Exposure. So you can go and have a look at those, or there's plenty online about Rob Belot's work with PFAS. You know, I think his work was pretty amazing just in terms of the dedication that he showed to the subject matter and believing that there was something there that was in the documents, the tens of thousands of pieces of paper that he was given. Yes, the room full of boxes that went up to the ceiling. And he diligently went through them for uh, years and presented his case. So it really opened the door to much of what we have today. And I think the difficult part, at least in the U.S., is sort of a mass media issue as well. You know, that was the 3M, that was the DuPont story, but it's not every corporation's story. You know, not every corporation has boxes of documents about PFAS and knew of the problems, et cetera, et cetera. So he continues to practice today. And in fact, that AFFF docket that I mentioned to you with over 500 cases, he has cases on that. And he actually brought a class action lawsuit on behalf of every citizen within the United States, the allegation being 
50% or more of U.S. citizens have PFAS in their blood. And his push with the court is that, well, they should be entitled to medical monitoring because they have PFAS in the blood and they could have medical issues down the line. So it's an interesting one. There were just some legal arguments about that one in the last few months. The case was not dismissed. It was allowed to go forward, but we'll see how far it gets. It's obviously going to take a long time and and seems to be his next mission, if you will. (laughs) So if you look at the Dark Waters film, didn't he win that? And the medical monitoring is something that needs to happen for 69,000 people, I think. Yes. So in the state of West Virginia and sort of the Ohio in West Virginia area where that particular river was and where he brought that lawsuit, yes, they were entitled to medical monitoring. And it's actually one of the more remarkable things about what he did, and I give him a lot of credit for this, is he was able to, I suppose, convince DuPont as part of the lawsuit to make a settlement for several hundred millions of dollars to set up that medical monitoring program. And part of the agreement to set up the medical monitoring program is the now famous C8 Science Panel, a a group of three and their teams, very renowned experts who studied the results of those 70,000 or so citizens who gave their blood to have the PFAS test. And what he was able to get the company to agree to was, you know, if nothing comes of this and this independent panel shows that there are no causal connections between PFAS and effects on the human health system, then I can never again bring a lawsuit for these 70,000 citizens claiming that PFAS has harmed them directly. But if the results of that science panel show that there are causal connections between PFAS, then I can go after you on behalf of those individuals that have those problems for damages to those people. It was a huge gamble, um, not only on his part, but I represent companies mostly. And, you know, I give him a lot of credit for However, he did it, getting the attorneys who represent the companies to agree to that type of result, because as we all know now, the science panel did indeed find several things that are most likely uh, linked to PFAS and uh, ill effects to the human health system. And it resulted in Attorney Balat being able to file lawsuits on behalf of the citizens and get damages for them. So it was really a remarkable piece of negotiating, I would say, and Perhaps only attorneys would be enthralled by that, but (laughs) I nonetheless haven't seen anything else like that, at least in the United States before. So It was a very gutsy move for sure. And thank goodness he made it because now a lot of people feel like they've got, you know, legs to stand on. Just before we wrap up, do you remember what those six health effects were that you mentioned just a second ago from Rob Ballot's work? Do you remember what those six were from the C8 study? I do, yes. Testicular cancer and kidney cancer, liver damage, thyroid disease, increased cholesterol levels. And then there were some connections that were found to children in the womb, such as lower birth weight. So those were the six. I don't know about your own lawsuits with personal damages. Are you seeing the courts recognize those um, C8 findings? Yes, although they are also, you know, with respect to those six that I just mentioned, the most common lawsuits that are pursued are actually the cancers, because they are the ones that will have the most damages associated with them to the individuals who are suing. But there are courts that, as they are presented with expert evidence, are recognizing the C8 science panel findings. And as it is in the United States, each side is able to present evidence and epidemiology, perhaps showing that there isn't a causal connection or that there are 
numerous other causes to those different things, but I haven't seen any court that I know of in the United States exclude or say, I'm not going to follow or listen to the findings of this science panel. Well, that's very interesting because in our Australian inquiries against the Department of Defence, against the Commonwealth government, really, the C8 findings did get some criticism. So it's interesting to see and hear that they have quite an impact in the United States. They're quite respected. They do because of the sheer number of people that were part of that cohort, you know, the 70,000 or so citizens. It's it's never really been seen before where you have 70,000 live citizens willing to give their blood for an epidemiology study. And so, you know, it does carry weight. As I said before, both sides are allowed to present their evidence. So there are certainly other studies on the other side that might suggest that some of the allegations and things that are alleged to be wrong with individuals that are linked to PFAS are perhaps not as strong as some of the ones that I mentioned to you. So always a battle of the experts, as we call it, in the legal system on that front. America seems a bit more open to discuss um, PFAS and the harms and the law side of it and regulation than a lot of experts in Australia. I've been to environmental conferences where they are in these rooms discussing the regulations that should be put in place against PFAS. And many of these experts don't want to go on the record, won't talk uh, on the podcast. Despite numerous requests, I've just been shut out from another environmental PFAS day with experts that was held in Sydney and I asked for a media pass and it's not granted. So we seem to be a lot more shut down in Australia than what America and even Europe is. I don't actually understand why because PFAS is a global problem. I apologize, I'm not terribly familiar with why that would be in Australia, but I would agree with what you said, Kayleen, that in the United States, at least, you could certainly find experts on either side, truthfully, um, (laughs) at sort of an abundance who would be willing to talk on this issue. Um, You are an example. You're a lawyer. You don't even know me, but you have said, yes, you can record me. Yes, you can do this. I've approached people that are involved in the class actions in Australia, like lawyers, and, and I'm still trying to get through the gate to interview them. We had three big class actions settle against the Department of Defence in Australia. You would be familiar with that or not really? Well, I've seen it in the news, yes. John, you've done environmental contaminants for 17 years and PFAS for 10 years of that, was that right? Uh, About five now. What has struck you about PFAS versus other contaminants that you have, you know, litigated? What's different about PFAS? You know, there are many contaminants that in the United States the government addresses or tries to address and, you know, are sometimes uh, the subject of lawsuits and certainly the corporate clients that I represent are, are always concerned about. But I think one thing that separates PFAS from some of the others is just the magnitude of its prevalence in the environment, truthfully. The closest comparison I can truthfully think of, and it was... I say was, but it still is uh, a litigation that is ongoing in the United States for around 40 to 50 years now is asbestos fibers. They were very prevalent at one point in history as well and are still causing people injury and harm and cancer. But PFAS, I would say, or have the potential, and I don't know if it's ever been compared directly, but have the potential to be even more prevalent than that, especially due to just how resilient they are in the environment. So it's certainly, from that perspective, 
much greater in scale and scope and magnitude than many of the other chemicals that are used in some capacity in the United States, which are, you know, by companies used a little bit more in a targeted fashion and not on such a large scale. It seems like there's going to be a lot more litigation to come. Would you agree with that? Uh, With PFAS, yes, I would. Is there anything else, John, that you would like to say about what we've discussed today or PFAS in general? I think the only other thing I can really think of, Kayleen, is you mentioned that I suppose, especially compared to Australia, that the United States seems more open to talk about these issues and publicly, I suppose, and and to try and take action. I, I think from what I've seen as well, as I mentioned, I represent a number of corporations. I don't represent just for disclaimer, I don't represent 3M and DuPont, nor have I ever, but at least for the corporations that myself and my firm represent, they too are actually very interested in figuring out the scope of the problem and solving it. Many of them, they're not the type of companies who are just putting their head in the sand, as we say in the United States, <laughs> in other words, ignoring the problem and hoping that it goes away. I think there's a good amount of corporate citizenship that's actually going on in that the corporations that are using these chemicals are trying to find better alternatives and ways, working with the EPA directly to find ways to actually get rid of them in a safe manner. So I am not familiar with whether or not that's the attitude and culture in Australia, truthfully, so I apologize. But at least in the United States, that's certainly what I'm seeing. Are you familiar with the news that came out of Sweden? It was 165 residents. The court has found in their favour that they have the right to compensation. And this is because of a water provider? that has polluted their water. They're in Kalingi, Ronneby in Sweden. Have, are you familiar with that one? I'm not actually, no. It's worth having a look. If you listen to Radio Sweden Weekly, they've given me permission to use a little bit of their audio from their interview in my podcast news. So I will be talking about that. But it's interesting language that the reporter talks about that the court said. It said that, this is not quoted, but it said that, you know, pretty much because people had this chemical in their body, it was making it, making their body less able to fight other toxins. Yeah, that's interesting. As you were speaking, I found the Radio Sweden site and I see the headline news about it. So I'll have to look into it. I have seen similar news reports to what you mentioned about PFAS interfering with immunity and the ability to fight other toxins and and viruses. News reports, but never have we seen this language, I don't believe, coming from the court. I'll have to look at that. So in the news report that Radio Sweden Weekly did, the news reporter that was reporting it said, the court ruled that the increased levels of PFAS in the blood does lead to increased health risks. It said that contamination of the water had led to a lasting change and deterioration of the plaintiff's bodies compared to if they had never been exposed to PFOS, lowering their capacity to compensate for other types of stress and toxins. What do you think of that language? If that's actually what's in the judgment, I haven't seen it. I've only got that report. Wow, interesting. I've never heard any court or, you know, I'm trying to think too, Kayleen. I don't know if I've seen even a scientific study that has said that. So that that's very interesting. And I was just thinking back and actually looking at my notes about the science panel I mentioned in the U.S. and immunity deficiency or, 
or lowering was not one of the things that they appear to have looked at or even found was connected to PFAS. So it's an interesting angle. I truthfully, I'm sorry, I don't have much comment on that because I'm just not familiar with it. So I would love to see the Swedish judgment if you get your hands on it. That's quite different to what we've seen before. Yeah, it's powerful language out of Sweden for sure. I saved this page. I'm going to look for the ruling myself. If I find it, I will send it to you. (laughs) Very good. All right. Um, Is there anything else you want to add? Always give people one last chance because sometimes you think of it and you think, I wish I'd said that. No, I don't think so. I hope I've been helpful to you. And again, thank you so much for waking up at probably 5 a.m. in the morning or (laughs) whatever you needed to do to do this. So... Thank you. I do it because it does matter, but it's a hard topic to stay on in a pandemic, I can tell you. (laughs) No kidding. I know. (laughs) By the way, one more quick question. Are you aware that there's an estimated 200 million people in the US to be drinking PFAS contaminated water? I think I've heard that figure or thereabouts before. Yes, I have heard that. Yeah. And it again goes to what we talked about, Kayleen, just before about just the prevalence in the environment and the drinking water sources in the U.S. for sure, but I've seen statistics about it globally as well. Thank you, John, for talking with me today on Talking PFAS podcast. Appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed today's Talking PFAS feature. The next feature will be available on the 17th of June, and I'll tell you who my special guest is just a few days prior in the Talking PFAS news that's available on the 14th of June. And apologies, listeners, in the last episode of Talking PFAS News, I said that the next news episode would be available on the 19th of May, but it will actually be the 17th of May and every fortnight after that. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget, you can follow Talking PFAS on Twitter. I tweet nationally and globally about PFAS. So the Twitter handle is Talking PFAS. And you can also email me at talkingpfas at gmail.com. And remember, all information in today's episode is copyright. Please share, but contact me for reuse permissions. Thank you very much. See you next time.